Hi, and welcome to Movements and Sounds, a podcast focusing on contemporary Indigenous musics and sounds in Australia and issues related to this topic. At SOAS Radio, we are excited to bring stories from the other side of the world to our studio in London. Thanks so much for listening to Movements and Sounds. I'm Charlotte, the facilitator of this podcast. It is important to know that I am a non-Indigenous person, however I support decolonization and giving land back to Indigenous peoples. Today I'm in conversation with Dominic Allen. Dominic is a film director and producer and is a guest here today to talk about his film slash virtual reality experience, Caribri. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the custodians of the lands we're speaking from today, the Gadigal people on Eora and the Adagual people on Bonjelong. Sovereignty over these lands was never ceded. Okay, Dominic, so first question. Could you describe in your own words what the Caribri project entails? Yeah, so Caribri is a multi-platform project which involves a virtual reality experience at its core. It also has a full dome experience, which is a planetarium style projection that goes onto large scale cinema screens, which are domes, um, either in planetariums or in, in pop-up domes. Uh, it also exists as an interactive exhibition. So for example, the National Film and Sound Archive have components of different elements of it and exhibit the film on VR, also online as an immersive website, and also using um, tablets and other mobile devices for immersive 360 playback and so it, it is genuinely a multi-platform project and really at its core it's it's celebrating uh the the history of australian indigenous australian song and dance yeah awesome what inspired you uh on a personal level to initiate such a project i've uh, had a background working with first nations people in documentary as a documentary filmmaker and um Along the way, I was doing a project in Arnhem Land in a little place called Gumbulanya, which is near the East Alligator River. I met a dancer there whose name is Joey Nungwara uh, when he was contributing to a documentary we were making at the time. Part of the experience I had with Joey was getting to witness him perform what he calls a sorry dance, which is a funeral type um, song and dance that people do. Um, as part of the process of, of um, sorry, business, which is, you know, mourning the death of a past community member. Joey's role in the community there is to perform that um, ritual whenever someone dies. And, and it's pretty intense and um, it's deeply moving experience. And so I saw Joey do that on a road. Uh, this kid had died from a car crash. And um, so Joey took us out to somewhere nearby and in the middle of a dirt road um, performed this dance. And being a camera operator, you get to be very close to people when they're doing these sorts of things. And it provides a really intense, full-on connection to the person and also to the context of what's happening. And it was at that moment seeing Joey perform that dance and and, and wanting to um, kind of understand it that I just thought that uh, using virtual reality as a tool to try to get more audiences into places like um, Gubalanya, which is to say very remote locations, very uh, difficult to access, harnessing the technology of virtual reality to be able to share that visceral experience with more people could be a really powerful thing um, for both the audience and also for the dancers and, and different um, First Nations performers and ritual, you know, practice um, sort of custodians that we that we have all around the country. And so that was the fundamental moment that I thought Caribbean would be a great experience. <clears throat> and then I spoke with uh, a lot of um, traditional owners and leaders amongst some of the communities that I had some contacts with already. 
and just just wanted to get a feeling for whether or not that would be a welcome project and, and got a really warm response from Annette Cogolo in uh, Walmajari country up in um, Fitzroy Crossing and then Delta K, who's a, a senior um, Araquile uh, leader here in Byron Bay where I'm based now. Um, and so that, that, that everything just sort of snowballed from there, but it was really the experience of seeing Joey and just wanting to, um, uh, you know, use this technology to bring this experience to more people. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been like friction or something? You just explained how it started with you wanting to document a ceremony around sorry business. Was that at all welcomed to to have a camera around? Yeah, of course. And I think, you know, we, we did a very... Um, slow and um, a very sort of involved uh, discovery period with each group where we showed them the technology um, and, you know, made it really clear what we were hoping to do. And then, of course, after we did our filming, shared the filming and, and got permission on what parts should or shouldn't be included. And, um, I mean, the, the the practices that as a non-First Nations Australian that you that you practice working with internet, intellectual, um, indigenous cultural intellectual property are quite rigorous and um, thankfully there's some great guides for that sort of stuff but no I wouldn't say there was friction I mean there was there's been friction around the project in other areas about kind of I guess you know who we chose or not didn't choose but who we got to sort of film with our resources and potentially not uh, having enough diversity or not being able to really show the, the full depth and diversity but I mean of course that's going to be the case in the country where there's hundreds of First Nations communities you know it's going to be a situation where there's um you know there's no way with with one small project you're able to document them all and so we just made that really clear in our project philosophy that this was just a a very small quantity that represents you know in no way the totality of the depth and diversity that's out there but there was no friction with the um with the community members or dance members or participants Mm. yeah about the, the the showing the diversity who who decided who to so um, Mar- we we worked with uh, and under the leadership of Marilyn Miller who's a very experienced um first nations woman in dance and song in Australia she's had a number of prestigious and, and important roles around the country um and also done things for festivals like law in the past where where you know it, it's um incumbent upon her to make decisions about you know, who to select and who to sort of focus on for whichever season or year or or whatever. Um, and so Marilyn Miller really led that process for us, introduced to us by Tara June Winch, who's a who's the Indigenous author of the script, um, the the voiceover. So Marilyn played a really crucial role and we really looked to Marilyn for leadership on, you know, who should we approach and how do we, only with nine different groups or nine different entities you know how can we try to show some of the diversity and so really we just took the lead from Marilyn on that yeah and I've seen most of the uh, the groups that are included in Caribbean, uh are based in rural areas was that also a deliberate choice I wouldn't say so actually um, I mean Bangara is a very uh, core group to the um, to the film and, and of course they're you know they're one of the most sophisticated dance or performance companies in Australia, full stop, uh, based in, in the Nation there in Sydney. And, um, you know, the Dubai dancers are also urban um, women. You know, they're very modern kind of uh, leaders of the Byron Bay community. Um, the Lonely Boys, even though they're from Nooka, they're from, from an, a remote area themselves, That they're all, again, pretty urban guys. You know, they're, they're rock and roll performers who live around Darwin and, and Alice and some of those other areas, um, which again are pretty urban. And I mean, the, the, 
the Anangu community who are based in Mutajulu are certainly living on country, um, you know, in a very meaningful way still and, and living out by the big rock there. Um, so they, they're probably um, one of the more remote and um, sort of country-based groups that we met. And of course, Joey as well, who I just mentioned that lives deep in Arnhem Land, you know, he's he's sort of not so much in that urban environment. But again, the Mayiwumba group who are in Karunda, you know, they're all living around Cairns um, and, and, and also, uh, you know, in an urban environment. And then the Nay uh, Giwi Gigi dance troupe who are um, the Northern Thunder, the Saibai dancers. Bamag is a pretty big town as well, which is at the very end of Australia. Um, so I actually, you know, I, I would say, and the Spinifex Gum Girls are all, you know, really trendy young performers in Cairns too. So actually, I think the majority of the groups uh, are, you know, city-based and and living in very modern situations. Yeah, yeah. Who is the experience made for? I had a look at the um, the teacher's guide that is provided. Yeah. Super yeah. useful. Um, so this is this is just provided on the website even. People can download it from there. And there it states the aim of the project is to capture, share and celebrate traditional and contemporary Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander music and dance. So, yeah, what was the audience you were trying to reach? Uh, look, I think there's a lot of people unfortunately, who are still really uh, ignorant about the depth and diversity of Australians' First Nations culture. And um, it's clear from the experience I've had that anyone that has a opportunity to learn more about it has a profound experience and, and it can, in some cases, be life-changing for them and, and, you know, lead to uh, a much greater awareness and respect for the First Nations people. And so, we were targeting, if we targeted anyone, um, curious people really, um, and also people who have a sort of uh, openness to song and dance. And, you know, it is a universal language and that's what uh, David Gulpalil, who's now passed, but uh, he provided an introduction to the film. And he says at the start that, you know, that it's the sort of language of, of the first people. But I think um, that song and dance is a really great thing that all humans can share and, and we can all sort of access together. And so that was, um, you know, the tool, I guess, to disarm some of those uh, separations or barriers that might be in the audience members and other people. Um, and so it's, yeah, I think we were really targeting, you know, any curious Australian um, first and foremost, but then also uh, specifically people with an interest in song and dance and culture. And that's, it's that second group, the people with an interest in song and dance and First Nations culture that have responded so powerfully to the film overseas. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, there's a very, very large interest in First Nations Australians from all parts of the world. And um, it's been great to see, see so many people overseas resonate with the project as well. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about that? I know the film has been featured in the Cannes Film Festival. Do you do you know a little bit about like the ways in which people have engaged? Has it been used as a as a teacher's resource or yeah? Do you have an example? So in, in internationally, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Internationally, um, predominantly, the film's been uh, seen by people at festivals and uh, film festivals. So Khan being the first international screening of the virtual reality version, which is when you put a headset on and you all sit in a room together and watch it in three D in three sixty, but. Also, as I said, it is a multi-platform project. And so we have full dome versions of this. There's a full dome planetarium in Zeiss, Germany, um, sorry, Jenner in Germany, uh, which is called the Zeiss Planetarium after Carl Zeiss, who invented the optics and still has his name on Sony lenses, which is kind of interesting. But he um, he 
has this great theater named after him there and and we were part of a uh, global film full dome festival and so the film plays there in a 45 minute version so you know everyone from german planetarium enthusiasts to uh to to kids in san francisco at the san francisco dance festival who then watched this film again in vr um you know there's been a very broad interest um it's played in france uh played in mexico look it's played all over the the world and i'd honestly say in probably 20 countries and the majority of those being headset based but also on full dome the website is predominantly focused at australian kids the the current website um, so you'd have to ask the National Film and Sound Archive if there's been use of that overseas. I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, right. And the website is, is produced by? Well, there's, you know, the, the version of it, which is called Caribbean Online, um, which is, I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. So that's uh, a kind of co-production between us as filmmakers and, and producers and the National Film and Sound Archive in Canberra. And so they've um, partnered with us to host that experience and to... Mm to build it into their website and make it accessible to their audiences and preserve it in their catalogue so that it can be um, accessible for generations to come. Yeah, right. Very cool. Mm. What was the what was the choice behind VR specifically to choose mm. a medium for this project? Well, VR has um, several unique properties to it which don't uh, translate in other mediums. And one of the sort of most important for this project being the feeling that you've done something or been somewhere that people have after VR. They did a test in Northern America where they showed a bunch of kids at the start of the year a tour of Rome in VR and then at the end of the year they said, has anyone been to Rome? And more than half the class put their hand up even though they hadn't been to Rome uh, because they just thought they had been to Rome off, off the back of that experience. And it's different to have you seen a film about Rome, you know, in which case in traditional medium that there's that distinction about what you've experienced and what you've seen and VR is more experience based than kind of watching based. It's, it's more immersive and it's more memorable and it has also cognitive impacts on you. So, you know, you, you will feel different than when you've watched something just on a flat screen, which is where VR is used in phobias and, and um, skills training and other sort of motor function and memory based function training areas as well. Uh, because, you know, it, it really accesses your brain in a very different way to traditional video. And so the reason we wanted to use VR for this was, um, as I was saying a bit earlier, just so you could fully embody the experience of having a one-on-one -on -one kind of witnessing of this incredible cultural and, um, you know, historical power that's being practiced by First Nations songs, uh, singers and dancers all over the country. Yeah. What made you decide to set the experience so beyond the videos of the performances, it's set in a, a desert landscape of Australia? The website is in a desert landscape predominantly because Uluru, you know, is metaphorically the heart of the country. It's also in traditional First Nations kind of cultural practices was a great meeting place for lots of different, you know, parts of the country. The, the online website is set around a campfire. Um, and, and all the different groups are located around it in a kind of concentric ring. And, and that's in some ways, um, you know, a pretty relevant um, motif or structure for this kind of content because, you know, a lot of it is about journeying off into different specific cultural practices or different specific artistic practices around the country um, and then returning back to this kind of central half, which everyone, you know, everyone can access and, and then going off on another journey. So 
that was a bit of a nod to the um, significance of Uluru, I guess, and, and um, you know, the this, this central desert in the country's um, heart and soul. And has the project had any feedback or responses from, from community members whose cultural expressions are displayed in the project? Yeah, very, yeah, very much so. Very much so. So, uh, I mean, we've, we've really um, been very strongly uh, involved in kind of co-production co with all of those groups, really. So everyone was involved the whole time. We also invited everyone to screenings in different rural areas as it screened um, around the country. You know, Delta K, again, who's the Dubai dancer um, and her family have been very involved in other components. She, she came down to the National Film and Sound Archive and presented the film there um, and also has, you know, been involved in creating the um, education resource. And there's lots of uh, lots of kind of different ways that the different groups have, have been involved. Um, so, yeah, it has been something that uh, we've definitely kind of kept contact with and, and everyone's, um, you know, had a chance to sort of participate with the spreading of it in their own areas. Yeah, awesome. You touched upon this a little earlier as well, but I wanted to go a little deeper. So you mentioned before you worked on this project as a non-Indigenous person, of course, but you had cultural advisors such as... Marilyn Miller, Annette Cogolo, to advise on cultural protocols and sensitivities. So can you tell a little bit more about that collaboration, that way of working together? Yeah, sure. I guess the key thing to recognize in working with First Nations content is that the uh, intellectual property and the content itself doesn't belong to the creator in the way that, you know, usually as a as a non-Indigenous Australian, when you're making, creating something as a producer or director, it becomes your intellectual property. That's just not the case when working with First Nations content or First Nations artists. And so I think it was just about really doing the right work to position ourselves as facilitators and, um, you know, technical collaborators in this project and at every stage, you know, doing kind of due diligence and, and taking the right processes to establish that dynamic and then also being able to um, really live that by allowing for time in which people would, would kind of reflect on what they wanted to do and at their pace and, you know, kind of in every different communities sort of speed and also at what and how was the focus of the dance for them. So it was kind of consultation under the framework of acknowledging ICIP, which is the Indigenous Cultural Intellectual Property Protocols. Screen Australia's got a great guide, which is working with First Nations that I was able to share with all the crew. And so everyone really understood the context of that. But, um, you know, it was a pleasure kind of having those cultural advisors on. Um, they're more than cultural advisors. Really. I mean, Marilyn set the sort of list. Annette, uh, you know, has, has been a constant kind of cultural advisor for the whole theme and approach. And then Tara June Winch is a First Nations Australian. She wrote the the script. And so, you know, she had full authority and, and kind of leadership over that. And then, as I said, with each different group on a one-on-one -on -one basis, it was a matter of just um, setting the right intentions and then being patient and um, and also being willing to go with the flow and, and follow the leadership when it came. And so very much so it was was less, I'd say, consultation and more looking to the, each different group as, as our genuine bosses and then, you know, taking direction um, when and how. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced um, or received negative responses at all? Not really at all. I mean, it's been an overwhelmingly positive project from start to finish. There, there are always some people who are, and quite understandably so, suspicious of white Australians working with such precious cultural property. Um, you know, and cultural kind of history and, and cultural uh, practices. 
and and I respect that. I mean, I th- there's there's been a lot of very uh, questionable exploitation of First Nations culture and First Nations, um, you know, rights as artists and as cultural custodians over the last 200 years since invasion here. So it's been uh, something that I think First Nations people have a right to be really sensitive about. So there has been some people that have, have been understandably nervous or tense about the whole premise, um, but we've found through, you know, through empathy and, and listening and and just being kind of very involved in in taking that on and, and explaining our values back that it's always been a very collaborative um, process in the end. And, you know, some of that stuff is really important as well because it just needs, needs to be done and we need to keep going through the process of responsibly dealing with those concerns and those priorities. Yeah, for sure. One of the groups that is part of Caribri is Spinifex Gum. Uh, yeah. Features the Malia Choir, which is an all indigenous female choir based in Cairns, as you said before. They sing in both English and Yinchi Bandi. Um, I know you worked with them on several projects. Can you tell something about your collaboration with them? I've been very fortunate to work with Spinifex Gum and Malia Choir uh, through a friendship I have with Felix Rebel, who's a, um artist and performer, the founder of the Cat Empire Band and, and does a number of other projects. He uh, had worked with Lynn Williams, who's the conductor and musical director of of Gondwana choirs and they're a choir for young Indigenous youth around the country. Felix had worked with them on a couple of offshoot projects around Australia Day back in the many, many years ago and probably in the late 2000s or mid 2000s. And out of their meeting, this offshoot choir called Malia started, which is uh, a smaller group of the Gondwana singers, all, all girls, uh, mostly based up in Cairns. And um, probably 16 or 20, 20 of them originally. And with Felix, um, they wrote this music. And then Deborah Brown, who's the former dra- uh, dancer from Bangara, is their choreographer and uh, artistic director in some ways in terms of their movement and other other bits and pieces, um, costume and whatnot. So she, she came on board too. And it's been a collaboration between Felix, Deb, Lynn, and of course the girls in the choir. And then if, in terms of the Yinjibadi stuff, you know, none of them speak Injibadi. Injibadi is the language and, and is, a, is from the Pilbara. They're, they're a traditional owner over uh, near Karatha. And um, Michael Woodley and Lorraine Coppin, who, who run the Julawalu Aboriginal Corporation over there, have, have written some really powerful stuff about their TO experience, traditional owner experience, about their history. And Felix had come across that some years earlier. So in some ways, it's a bit of an unlikely connection of all of these different elements um, but the voices of the the girls in Cairns and, and at Malia singing these um, stories from the Pilbara is also a deeply unifying experience in some ways you know and that's something that I think the Injibadi community um, led by Michael in this case and also the choir were really excited about and and um, some guest artists have come in with Briggs who's, who's a very uh, powerful hip-hop artist and then also Emma Donovan who's a very strong singer of all sorts of capacities really and so there's been um, a lot of collaboration from different performers around the the history of that and that that band or that group's just gone from strength to strength really and it's quite um you know it's quite a high impact performance and and it's played uh at a lot of festivals it's also played at the Sydney Opera House in front of you know some of the country's kind of most uh, most powerful leaders I, I saw Malcolm Turnbull in the audience at the time and this was when he was prime minister and it was it was just great to see Briggs singing about 
Aboriginal incarceration, you know, and, and having to see the Prime Minister squirming in his seat, you know, just a couple of uh, seats back. So it's a, it's a project that really brings a lot of um, important things to the fore. Yeah, for sure. And what has your role been in this project? I've created all the video content in the background. So I've um, shot uh, all the projections. There's, there's constant projections in the, in the um, show. And uh, so I filmed all that stuff with Felix in the Pilbara and the in cans and it's very kind of textural material stuff like train tracks and rocks and, um, you know, water. And so it's, they're really kind of fundamental primal elements really. And, and so we shot a lot of that stuff and it goes behind the choir. And, and I've also um, had the privilege and, and joy of working with them on a number of music videos. And of course they featured in, in Caribbean. And so they sing one of their key pieces, which is Malia, which is uh bush honey. And uh, it's a, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful piece. And it's, it's at the end of the film and, and everyone says, you know, it's just such a lovely way to finish what has been at different peaks and troughs, you know, been a big journey to finish with the voices of this young choir. So um, yeah, most of my experience with them has been through the concert, but also a little bit in um, Caribbean. And yet again, this project is highly interactive. Again, I, I read on their website that they encourage schools to use their music and create their own versions of the songs, which is really mm -hmm. cool. So why do you think interactive projects like this are important? You know, there's there's something about uh, not being a passive bystander to, to this stuff and also you know, in, interacting, whether it's with music or in the case of Caribri with 360 videos, gives you a, a deeper immersion as an audience member and, you you know, you become more involved and engaged in the material by nature. And I think that that's, uh, you know, it's important for this audience and for, for people these days too because with such a kind of overwhelming quantity of material out there, it's, um, it's you know, it's helpful, I think, if people can engage a bit more richly than just having stuff wash over them. If there is one message that you hope projects like Caribri and Spinifex Gum would bring into the world, what would it be? And how do you think a project like Caribri enables the circulation of that message? I don't know if it's so much a message for me, but uh, I think what's important is that as Australians in particular, that we understand the immense um, power and dignity and sophistication of First Nations culture in this country more uh, and that you know that through projects like this we we can get a way to build better relationships with the First Nations communities who, who are still very much suffering from all sorts of political and cultural bias and you know arrogance and, and violence really from from Australians and and so I think that um, you know the important thing is to recognize the contrary to being something that a problem that we need to fix you know the first nations people can teach us about their country and about you know the place we live and and have so much kind of incredible beauty in their culture and, and history that that can really inspire us as contemporary australians as well so i think you know that it's about uh growing awareness and growing kind of experience and and breaking down biases and breaking down barriers so that we can better um, respect the will and intention and um, culture of First Nations Australians. And again, I think it's it's just just sort of the number one thing is just listen, just go and have a look and um, and listen to and, and kind of witness. You know, it's it's a great opportunity for us to to change our perspectives and to grow into better humans by looking into the kind of culture and practices and and leadership of our First Nations people globally. 
you know, especially when there's such massive challenges going on with um, economics and, and social issues and um, climate issues. And, you know, I mean, again and again, there's just more and more leadership, I think, that, that we can accept from First Nations people that have been practising harmonious cultural practices, you know, for so much longer than post-industrial global world has. And so there's, I think there's just so much um, to celebrate and so much to learn. Amazing. <laughs> If you're listening to this and you're curious, you can explore Caribri online and the teacher's guide is there as well, provided if you'd like more information. So yeah, thanks Dominic so much. Thanks Charlotte, no worries, thank okay. you. Pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Movements and Sounds. This is a not-for-profit podcast. However, thanks to the SOAS Student Enterprise Fund, for every episode a donation will be made to SeedMob an indigenous-led organization in Australia fighting for climate justice. Find out more about this incredible organization on seatmob.org.au. See you at the next episode.